This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, welcome to a very special one-year anniversary of the Retro Roundup. It was May 9th of last year that I did my first one, which was a Monday. Um, this is Tuesday night that I'm recording it. You guys see it Wednesday morning. Um, and I'm excited to say that in the one-year anniversary, I'm here in the Retro RGB office in Brooklyn. Uh, I only have a very small amount of my stuff moved in, basically just the pile uh, on that desk that I need to review stuff and work on projects which is, as you can still see, a massive amount of stuff. But um, the rest of the office is empty, which is why it's kind of echoey, so I'm going to try to keep my voice down so it's not too annoying. But I was just really excited to do this podcast here in the room. Um, and it just because, you know, it's what a milestone, right? One year, I never missed a week. And now with your support, with the Patreon, I'm able to continue to do this and even grow. And hopefully I might even be able to have time to start doing a ton more reviews and you know, especially now that I have a place to come to that I can just flick a switch and start working and I don't have to tear down and set up and all that stuff. So I am super excited. Uh, as soon as I get the rest of my stuff moved in, which is a project, so it might be a week or two, um, but as soon as that stuff gets in, it'll be a lot less echoey. So um, hopefully it won't be too bad and you guys could bear with me for this week. But just wanted to say another massive thank you to everybody who supported through the Patreon. Um, you know, this is all because of your support, and I promise, I promise I will put it to good use. Uh, as soon as I get settled and get everything unpacked and ready, I will start doing more reviews and more testing and really just start hitting the ground running with this stuff. So thank you so much, and let's jump on to the news. First up, Darksoft has just opened pre-orders on a Sega STV multi-cart. And what that is, is basically the Saturn era of Sega arcade games. They had their own uh, motherboards, I guess is the best way to put it, for the arcade versions. So if you guys have one of those, or if you're into that stuff, this will allow all of the STV games to go onto one cart. And it's essentially the same as the Saturn versions, just obviously with much faster loading time. And of course, hooked through a jam harness and everything. So if you're using the original arcade cabinet, this is probably a good buy. It's $250 and should ship within two to three weeks. Um, and it's very limited quantities, so it should probably, the pre-order should probably fill up very quickly, you know, after the podcast airs. So if you were looking to buy one, definitely pick it up right away. Next is some more arcade news. There's a new video demoing Marcus's CPS2 digital output board that goes into detail showing how it works and giving an example of how it's working on a low lag flat screen monitor. So once again, this is just going to be a great solution for people who have arcade boards but not access to the full stand up with the CRT. All you'll need to do is get one of those almost zero lag flat screens now and you could actually have a good competition flat screen monitor directly out of a real CPS2 board. So hopefully I'll be able to try one of these out soon and I would love to get it in front of the actual 
professional Street Fighter gamers to see what they think of it and to see if it really feels any different to them. Next, Nintendo is offering an expansion pack for Zelda Breath of the Wild. It'll introduce features such as a new Trial of the Sword that supposedly will let Link take out enemies to awaken the true power of the Master Sword. Seems a little cheesy. Uh, and also has something called the Travel Medallion, which will let you travel back to that exact location, which I imagine would come in handy a lot. Um, as well as some more things later in the summer, like different outfits, um, adding Majora's masks, and a hard mode. So I'm still stuck on one of the, the bosses. It's just really annoying, and I probably don't have enough hearts to beat it, but I've kind of put Breath of the Wild aside for a little while, and I don't really have too much time to game anyway, so um, hopefully I'll get back into it. But um, if anybody's already beaten it and looking for more stuff to do, then the expansion pack seems perfect. Next up, Retronauts just posted an article that I found pretty interesting. It was talking about the game Hero Blaster, which was made by the same person who made Cave Story, which is one of my favorite games uh, that at least has been made in the past 10 years or so. And um, it, I guess even though the game Hero Blaster is a few years old, uh, the writer of the article said basically it was something that he felt like he wanted to revisit and it didn't get enough press. So um, the article convinced me enough to talk about it here, and uh, I wonder if any of you guys have played it and what your thoughts are. I guess it's available on PS4 now, as well as iOS and PC. Um, I think that's all of them. So if you've played the game, let me know what you think. Next, Did You Know Gaming just posted a video about a Sonic skateboard game prototype. And it was kind of a neat backstory about how one company made the prototype and then it didn't really work out with Sega, but then Sega made their own version of it. It's kind of a cool story, so if you're into Sonic, definitely give it a watch. The Akura box from the Behar Brothers will be shipping within a week. I actually was able to get a prototype version and I started the review. And uh, the review is actually taking a lot longer than I thought just because of all the different possibilities of aspect ratio differences that the Dreamcast kind of can output. And I guess the, the main problem is that Dreamcast outputs in a PC Visa resolution of 640 by 480 which many modern TVs actually process that differently than just a standard 480p digital television signal. Um, and with CRTs, it doesn't really make that much of a difference, but you kind of run into issues with flat screens. So I was trying to demonstrate the differences between how each method of getting an output from Dreamcast would differ and how the Acura is better in some and, and just the same in others. But I, I tried on a bunch of different TVs and got completely different results. So it's been kind of a nightmare to put the review together, not because there's anything wrong with the Acura, but just because there's so many different ways that uh, TVs process the aspect ratio of the Dreamcast. So just a, a quick skip to the end of the review. Um, if you have a flat screen TV and that's the only way that you want to play your Dreamcast games on it, the Acura is a, a great solution, especially if your TV only has an HDMI input. But if you want to play on both a CRT and a flat screen, or your flat screen has component inputs, using their Toro box might, depending on your situation, be the better choice. And I certainly don't feel bad uh, saying that because, you know, I'm, I'm telling you to either buy one of their products or another, <laughs> um, because they do make very high quality stuff. Uh, but yeah, hopefully I'll be finished with the review by next week and I'll have a final conclusion as to what the differences are and why, um, and it's been very confusing. The more I learn, the more questions come up. So um, if you're looking for an Acura box, uh, I think they're back up for order, and if you've already ordered yours, 
uh, it should be shipping within a week. So overall though, it's a very cool piece of equipment that worked perfect for me. So if you're interested, definitely pick one up. Rob from Retro Gaming Cables sent me a video showing his progress with the Pack-A-Punch fully shielded RGB SCART cables. And it looks like the molds and the tools are coming along nicely and he should have those up for sale fairly soon. I believe he had a short pre-order on those, but I think those went within a few hours. So um, you could try the link below and see if there's anything open for now. But I believe he still won't have stock for uh, stock of those cables for a few weeks now. But when they do, um, as soon as they come in, I'm going to be testing one of them because I'm really just excited to see what a fully shielded, you know, RGB SCAR cable looks like versus an unshielded versus. Um, CVBS versus C-Sync, so I really want to do one of those full tests and do direct screen captures and stuff to see what the differences are. But uh, I'll keep everybody updated as they become up for sale um, for good. Next, Firebrand X has updated his FrameMeister profiles for the Game Boy interface and Game Boy Player software that's playing the Game Boy portable games on the GameCube, as well as the Sega Saturn profiles. So if you're a FrameMeister user and you have those consoles, definitely update to his latest patches. Akari has just released a new firmware update for the SD to SNES ROM cart. It's mostly bug fixes and it also fixes a quirk that caused audio distortion with MSU1 audio on certain revision boards. So if you're an SD to SNES user, definitely update this one. And I believe a few people are now offering the installation on the upgrade board. Um, I think uh, I'm gonna do or I'm gonna have mine done and see how it comes out. But if you have an older revision of the SD to SNES, I believe you'll be able to mail it in and have it upgraded with this new expansion board to give it the higher quality and the louder audio output. So I'll review that as soon as it's available, and I'll make sure to do before and after captures and everything, but uh, more news on that as soon as it's available. There's an interesting discussion going on on the Shmups forum about Wii versus Wii U output, and whether you'll get a better output using the Wii U's HDMI versus the Wii U's component. Um, and this is actually something that's been talked about quite a bit, and uh, they're doing lots of great screen captures and side-by-side -side comparisons, but um, there isn't really a clear winner in my opinion. Um, there's, you know, one of them looks sharper, but the text comes out pixelated. And I, I just think the output of both is, is kind of questionable. So um, I'm not really going to comment too more until we, we really get more conclusive evidence. And I'll try myself to take a bunch more uh, screen captures when I have time. But basically, uh, I'm going to leave this one open for your interpretation. And definitely check out the forum if you're a big fan of either console. Um, and if not, as soon as I get more captures done and more information on both, I'll do a review of that as well. It looks like Ben Heck was able to get the Nintendo PlayStation to boot. I guess it had some bad capacitors in it and maybe a few other little things wrong with it. But it'll actually boot to the main menu now and it'll play homebrew games that recent developers have just made. So I think that's pretty awesome that we finally get to see that very cool piece of history up and running. And while there's no games that were known for it, I think the potential for homebrew would be pretty awesome. And especially if you're able to use it through things like the SD to SNES or even through emulation just to kind of experience what it might be like. So very cool. Next, it looks like RetroTink added another product to their lineup of Raspberry Pi video output boards. They've just added a component video only board for $65. 
So it's essentially the exact same as the board that they released and I showed uh, a few weeks ago that has component video as well as S-video and composite. So that one was 85 and this one's the same exact thing just without S-video and composite for 65. Which I think is great because I think many of us who would use the component video output would only need the component video and nothing else. And then of course they have the RGB board which uses 8-bit um, RGB output instead of 6 like the GERT adapters. Um, and I actually was able to get one and I haven't even plugged it in yet to see if it will work to be honest with you. Uh, I've been swamped trying to move in and, and get everything ready but um, it looks pretty awesome. So it's either RGB-S or RGB-HV, depending on which one you'd like to use. Um, and it's perfect for RGB monitors. So as soon as I have time, I'm really going to start testing these things and do comparison shots. And um, I think there are so many good solutions out there now. Uh, and I think not only are there good solutions, but I think they, they're each a little different in their own way. So each one will fit your scenario, might fit your scenario better than the other. So I'm just waiting on one more board to come in from France and then I'm going to try to do a full shootout of the different Raspberry Pi video output options and if there's a quality difference for any of them. So if you're interested in the products, the link is in the description. There's been an update to the Wavebeam color palette. That's the Nest color palette. It's basically just a subjective palette that the author, Naked Arthur, author, Naked Arthur, I'm shocked I barely even got that the first time. <laughs> anyway, um, it, it's an interpretive palette. It's not trying to be exact or it's not trying to be to recreate an exact experience. It's basically just a palette that the author himself wanted to make and see how it looked. And uh, I think it's absolutely great. At the moment, I'm still using Firebrand X's NTSC palette for almost everything, but I've been switching back and forth just to see. And uh, to my eyes, the Wavebeam is, is perfect for certain games. So once again, there's no right or wrong answer for this. It's all subjective and it's all what your eyes prefer. So definitely check it out. Um, and I'll see if I can try to get together uh, a zip file of all the palettes that are available. And I actually think that's legal to post because it's just palette information. So maybe I'll just host that on my website and uh, that way anybody who has or uses emulation or uses an analog NT mini, you could just swap between these palettes and kind of check it out. But I believe the Wavebeam is also available as a, a flash firmware flash for the NES RGB board. So if you like it, you could use it that way as well. Next, the G-Comp switches are now up for sale. That is the four-port component video switch from SuperG. The price went up $10 since the last pre-order because I guess he miscalculated something and during the pre-orders he just kind of ate the cost of the difference. Um, but now this is pretty much going to be the price of it. So. Um, they're available and in stock at the moment, so there's, this is not a pre-order, this is just buy, you know, log on to his website and buy one. Um, and there's also, his GSCART Switch Lite pre-orders are going to stay open until the 17th, so next week. Um, I very often get emails from people that are very angry that they couldn't get a GSCART Switch, so I just want to reiterate, he keeps these pre-orders open for a long time, so if you want one, yeah, I would definitely recommend picking one up now that uh, the pre-orders are open because it might be another two or three months before another pre-order opens up for those. Um, so the links are in the description and definitely check them out because they're good products. Next, Smoke Monster has updated his ROM packs for a few different consoles. Genesis, SNES, Game Gear, SMS, and the NT Mini Mega Rollup pack thing that he did. 
um, they're all available with newer versions. So as usual, just Google Smoke Monster ROM set, because I'm not sure the, if I'm allowed to post links to that or not, and you're able to get the full roll-up packs for it. Um, great work, lots of great additions. There's a bunch of other people that are contributing now, which is a huge help to, to him. So uh, as always, these are my go-to ROM packs. These are the only things I use anymore, to be honest with you. So uh, if you have those consoles and you use his ROM packs, definitely update them. And lastly, this Saturday, May 13th, I will be at the Montreal Retro Gaming Festival along with Nick and Steve from HD Retrovision and Renee from DB Electronics. I am really excited. I haven't been back to Canada in a long time. And to be honest, I didn't even know if I was going to make it until just a few days ago because I had passport renewal issues. Um, but that's all straightened out. I have passport and plane tickets in hand, uh, and I'm really looking forward to see some of my Canadian friends up there. So hopefully if you're in the area, you could swing by. Um, just I'll be there all day long from start to finish, so just look around for me. You can't miss me. I'm the large, loud American. So, um, And I'm pretty much going to be dressed the same because I, I always just dress the same. Uh, and also, since most of us from the Retro Roundtable will be there, we're going to try to do the podcast on Saturday. Um, the issue is, will we be able to find a place that's both quiet enough and has internet access that's fast enough? Um, Voltar is apparently banned from Canada, so he couldn't make this one. Uh, so we have to find a way to, to link him into this, as well as you know be able to broadcast video live on YouTube. So what I suggest you guys do if you listen to the podcast is go to YouTube um, and then just you know, subscribe and click on the little bell thingy and that way um, when we go live uh, you'll get noti- if we go live you'll get notified um, if we don't do it uh, this Saturday we'll do the retro roundtable a different um, you know a different day next week and maybe we'll just do you know we'll just do a, a recorded video session and I'll include it in next week's podcast or something but I'm really sorry for the um, you know, for the instability of this, because we're really just at the mercy of internet access and wherever we're going to be. Um, but and also, don't um, don't worry about having that little bell notification up, because with the Retro Roundtable podcast, um, you'll only get notifications the day that we post stuff. So it's not like you'll get ten annoying emails a week from us or something. But hopefully, we'll be able to pull it all off, and we'll be able to come to you guys live from Canada. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing anybody there, and uh, hopefully I'll have a lot of cool selfies and pictures up on the net of everybody I meet there. Now on to the Q&A stuff. I guess I gotta start by talking about the 2DS discussion in the comments from last week. Um, I guess I kinda made some joking comments about who cares about the new 2DS, um, but I didn't realize how many people actually played the 3DS in 2DS mode. So for me personally, I thought by far the coolest feature of the 3DS was that 3D screen, and I played every game on it only in 3D. I never turned it down or off. I always used the 3D effect all the way up, and I loved it. Um, I don't own a new 3DS. I own the original, but I've seen one, and the 3D effect was even better on that. So I just never imagined that people would play it in 2D mode anyway. And then I very stupidly and ignorantly didn't consider people with glasses or eyesight issues that can't use it in the 3D mode. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I guess I was just ignorant about all that stuff. So I guess the new 2DS is kind of a neat product for that market and probably will sell. 
Uh, me personally though, I'm, I'm still going to play all my 3DS games in full 3D mode, but uh, I definitely won't tease the 2DS stuff anymore because there's obviously a strong market for it and a good reason to have it out there. Next, I wanted to address some of the negative comments people made about the price of the G-SCART Switch Lite. I just, I don't think that a lot of the people that said bad things about the price realized what it was they were getting. And if you do, then by all means, you're entitled to your opinion and, you know, that's cool. But for the people that don't realize, um, it is not just a basic switch. So yes, you can get a Bandridge, I think a five-port switch for like 70 bucks or something and a manual push button. And some have problems, some don't, but I guess the ones that have problems, you could just, you know, uh, cut a trace and fix it. It's fairly easy. I guess it's a pain to get it apart, but easy to do the fix. Um, but it's also a single output, and there's no extra features on it. And what you get with the G-SCART switch is you're getting, you know, eight inputs that are automatically switching. And you're also getting more features than you're getting in any of those. So the dual outputs is a big thing, because dual outputs... You're not just tying two outputs to the same line. That would change the signal, it would make it darker, create a different impedance of it. Um, by having it the way Super G does it, it's two discrete outputs that don't affect each other. So you can get two very solid, good quality outputs at the same exact time, which is really imperative for people that do streaming um, who want to broadcast a good quality image. And with both of the G-SCART switches, you get a number of extra features. And the G-SCART switch light, the big one for me is the digital sync regeneration. I think that's what he's calling it. But basically, um, a, lot of, a lot of cables aren't made to perfectly match the consoles. And there's a lot of scenarios that could happen. But regardless of those, with the new G-SCART switch light, whatever you put in, the uh, sync output is 75 ohm C-Sync, which is really great for a lot of different people's setups. And then with the original G-SCART switch, you have that VGA port, which you could switch between RGB and RGB-HV, as well as a separate dedicated audio output. Um, so, and, you know, with both, you're getting pretty much no signal quality loss through them. Um, there is the issue of the original one having a low-pass filter, so you need to make a little mod to that if you need to turn that off, but... Basically, you're just you're getting a high-end piece of equipment designed by somebody in the retro gaming community for the retro gaming community. So, and if you still think it's too expensive, and if you still think you know it's not for you, that's totally fine. I just wanted to make sure to clarify that for all the people that said 200 bucks, you're crazy. Why would I need that for a switch? You might not need that for a switch, but if you need dual outputs, if you're worried about making sure you have the perfect sync output, you know, if you want to plug in eight ports then it really is worth the money. Uh, the other G-SCART Switch Lite related comment was about the outputs um, or the input when being used with Syncon Green. And according to Super G, uh, it might not actually work at all with Syncon Green. And that's because he uses the sync line to detect which port is active. And on the original G-SCART Switch, you could just leave it in port eight because that's the default. So if it doesn't detect anything, it just goes to port eight. Whereas on light, it has to detect something before it switches over. Um, so when you're using a PlayStation 2, if you go between 480i and 480p mode in the sync on green, um, it'll actually just won't not work at all on the G-SCART Switch Lite, which is bad news for people that this is going to be your only Switch and you're going to you planned on using sync on green. 
The good news is Super G is making another product that will allow for any PS2 SCART cable to output RGBS on you know, no matter what the input signal is. So 240p, 480i, sync on green, 480p, it doesn't matter. Um, there's no price or release date on this, but I think this is the perfect solution. At the moment in my sync on green video, I go through all the different ways that you can get it, and other than um, other than directly into the OSSC or directly into a display that can handle it, it's kind of a complicated and convoluted way. So hopefully Super G will just have a dongle that you could just plug in your SCAR cable, you know, plug the other end in and make it work. But uh, that, no price and release date, so unfortunately if you plan on using a G-SCAR Switch Lite uh, and sync on green PS2, then you're kind of out of luck for now, you'll have to manually plug directly in. So uh, sorry for if I, that was a ramble or if there was too much information. I just wanted to clear up both of those things, um, you know, just to make sure that uh, people got the correct information they need for their setup. Next, Shoebopper asked what wire I recommend to do console mods, uh, and for a long time I used single core Kynar wire, which seemed to work fine and seemed to be pretty easy for some mods. But uh, Voltar has actually been verbally abusing me until I switched over to uh, stranded ribbon wire. So ribbon meaning the wires are, are kind of, they're generally a little thicker shielded um, and then stranded is there's multi strands inside of it, not just one solid core. Uh, I actually find it harder to work with in certain scenarios and easier in others. Um, but it does come for, it ends up in a much cleaner looking and cleaner functioning solution. And I think one of the things is uh, a cleaner looking solution often is the exact same as a better functioning. You know, shorter wires, less bends in the wire, the wires don't overlap upon each other. And you'll get more of that with, uh, you know, using ribbon wire as opposed to single, single wire. And then solid core versus the multi-stranded core is obviously if anything inside that solid core breaks, your signal's gone. But with the multi-stranded core, you know, there's many different strands sending the signal down, so there's better chance of, uh, you know, the signal staying proper. So, um, I guess, uh, hopefully we'll be doing some more mod videos soon, and I plan on redoing a lot of my old mod videos using that, um, you know, multi-stranded ribbon wire. So, you guys will be able to see first thing if it is easier or harder to use and how it, how it looks different. Okay, up next I have a very cool interview with Joe, one of the founders of the Video Game Museum in Texas, as well as the owner of Digital Press Games in New Jersey. Um, but before we move on to that, I just want to let everybody know, uh, you know, obviously thanks again so much for all Patreon supporters. Next week I'll try to do the giveaway, because um, I still will be doing a monthly giveaway for that. And I might actually be back in the apartment next week. It depends if I can get stuff moved in, because I just don't want there to be more echo like today. So the audio quality today wasn't great because of the echo, and because I'm trying to you know, lean in and talk into the mic. And the audio quality of the interview didn't come out as good as I thought it would either. Uh, it was weird, because when we did a test run, it sounded perfect, and then we must have moved over a foot or something. But uh, Maybe I should start getting lapel mics for interviews. So anybody that works in the industry and has done this stuff before, um, I don't usually, I never like lapel mics because I like to feel natural. I like people to just be able to walk up and start talking, but it doesn't often end up working well that way. So I still have my Blue Yeti mic, which, you know, so far has been working pretty perfectly. Uh, and when we did the test run, 
it sounded perfect. So um, hopefully I can I tweak the audio enough in post so that it's you know good enough to listen to because I really enjoyed the interview. Joe's a good guy and you know, I learned a lot about the video game museum. But uh, any tips about lapel mics and if they really are worth using would be appreciated. And uh, next week, promise the audio quality will be back to normal with no echo. Uh, and hopefully I will be in this office again, but if not, um, one last one out of the apartment before I'm officially moved in. And then they'll all be out of here from now on with hopefully a lot more work. So hope you enjoy the video and the interview with Joe. Uh, and as always, comments and criticism are much appreciated. Um, I'll check them all out and uh, post down below. And I'll see you guys next week. Well, guys, I am here with Joe from Digital Press Video Games and the Video Game Museum in Texas, right? National Video Game Museum. National Video Game Museum. Plug. <laughs> so I would like to know about all of these things. How did you get started? Um, you know, how did all these things come about? And then later on, details about the Video Game Museum itself, actually. Well, I mean, the origin story is probably pretty well known. Um, so I'll see if I can put sort of a different spin on it. Um, imagine that you're growing up a pack rat. And, um, or maybe a hoarder. <laughs> and everything that you do uh, means that you have to pile things on, right? So when I was a kid, I was collecting um, Legos, and then I was collecting coins, and I was collecting stamps, and then there were baseball cards, and then there were comic books. <laughs> so by the time video games came out, which I was already a teenager, mm -hmm. um, suddenly I found something that was not only fun to play, but... I could collect them too. So all of those other collections sort of went sideways, right? They got packed away and um, I, I stopped being interested in comic books anymore and I started to become interested in Atari. So many, many years forward, uh, I had met um, a couple of guys that were also interested in doing that very same thing. They were collecting mm -hmm. video games. Um, some of my friend John was a big-time Atari guy. My friend Sean was a big-time Intellivision guy. Mm -hmm. We had sort of grown up taking different routes for what we liked, but what that also meant was that our collections sort of went like this. So we had this really great composite of games and systems and peripherals and magazines and patches and memorabilia and all sorts of things, right? So in 1999... Um, we started a show called Classic Gaming Expo in Las mm -hmm. Vegas. Now, the purpose of that wasn't necessarily to show off our collection, but that was a sort of side story to the show. Mm -hmm. What we really wanted to do was get industry guys that used to work at Atari and in television and, and with all those companies sort of into the mix mm -hmm. again, show them that there was uh, an audience out there still in 1999 that enjoyed those really old games. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, at the same time, we needed to do some other stuff. So we had those guys speak. We brought vendors in that were selling old games. And then we had our collection, which we called a museum. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the early days of us putting out our stuff for people to sort of enjoy um, when it wasn't sitting in boxes at, in our homes, right? So uh, the, the very first museum for us was Classic Gaming Expo in 99. So basically like a traveling museum, whenever you brought it to the expos, you brought your stuff and were able to show off your collection and kind of demonstrate it that way. Yeah. Yeah, we, we always use 1999 as sort of that, uh, that milestone as this is when we became a traveling museum, mm -hmm. running it through our own show. Mm -hmm. But after a couple of years um, of doing that, we started to get noticed by the industry as like these guys are doing this sort of cool retro thing and we should have this retro thing at our event. 
So, and, and ironically enough, it started with the big one, E3. Like, they were the very first people to contact us and say, we want to do an homage. I think it was E3's 10-year anniversary, hmm. probably 2002, I forget. But um, they wanted to do this sort of a retro-themed homage to the industry. And so we, that's where we first set up our first off-site, you know, away from our comfort zone um, at, a, at a big event. And it was kind of cool because we were this oasis of old stuff amid all of these brand new games that were coming out that year. And, you know, we won all sorts of awards. And, and for the next couple of years, we did E3 and started to branch out into all of the other ones, that were like PAX and Game Developer Conference. And we did South by Southwest. And mm-hmm. over the years, I, I can't even mention all the ones that we've done. But um, doing Traveling Museum, when you're already in your 40s, is tough because your stuff's old and you're old. And you're doing older. expos at all, people don't understand unless you've done it. I used to do, uh, back my other job, um, uh, Consumer Electronics Show, CES, and you'd see guys on day five. So they've been there six days on their feet, out with customers. So it's basically a 15-hour work day, five or six days in a row. You'd see guys in the elevator getting, you know, in the way. Five guys, just blank-faced. <laughs> Not saying a word to just, yeah. just zombies walking out. It it takes a lot out of you. Yeah, that was so. probably us, the zombies <laughs> in the elevator. We spent yeah. a lot of time in elevators, freight elevators over oh, the years. I can imagine. Yeah, going up and down. Yeah, and you know, the, the other thing is when you do the smaller shows, as you probably know, they don't have the same facilities. So you don't just pull your truck up to a dock and unload there and have some guys oh, take yeah. your stuff to your booth. Sometimes you are parked in the parking lot and you've got to bring some hand trucks and you got to get into a hotel and up the stairs and oh yeah yeah so we've had some fun ones like that too. <laughs> that was fun but yeah that stuff it, it puts wear and tear both on museum items which is not what you, something you want to put wear and tear on right as well as our own you know knees feet back yeah cetera, brains yeah and you know to anytime you add travel to anything it adds just a huge level of cost on top of that as well so I can imagine that was trying to wear on the the budget as well after a while I mean the one thing I'll say about that I think anybody that knows us knows that we were never about the money we rarely ever asked to be paid to do any of these things as long as there was something in it for us, whether it was, you know, the boot space was free or we're mm-hmm. going to get some sort of publicity to help promote our next project or whatever it was. It was always okay. And and it's a double-edged sword because we were okay financially because we had jobs. All three of us had our right. own full-time jobs and this was a hobby. And the other side of the sword is we had jobs. So we didn't have a lot of time to really put into this right. and, and, and make ourselves dedicated as a museum. You know what you just said. It's not about the money. It's um, you know anybody that's been in a band in the past five years knows uh, it's not. But without money, you can't. You just can't continue. You have to, or else you have to give up the day job. You have to give up something. You know, you're, sure. that's your only hobby at this point now. And it just, it you know, all this stuff wears on any human. You know, what I mean, no matter how tough you are with this stuff. So it's, yeah, I, I'm glad that you guys had that mentality of um, it's not about the money because that's probably what kept it going sometimes when uh, you know when you're carrying boxes of stuff across the parking lot <laughs> but uh i'm it, glad that it i'm glad that the community did help out and do things like donate space for you and everything yeah. space and a lot of it is love i mean it really is you know you like i grew up with this stuff like i said you know that became a, a part of my life it was the thing i always looked forward to so even when i was working full-time i couldn't wait to get home and play mm-hmm. right so when you have that sort of a passion about something that you do and i'm sure this is the same with any job and i'm sure any artist yeah. would say the same thing that you know you're willing to kind of bend a little bit on the money as long as 
it's not going to suck you dry what you're going into. Yeah, exactly. So, but you know that that wear and tear um, ultimately it gets to you to a point where you're like, well, now we have to decide what we're going to do next. Are we going to keep doing this mm-hmm. until we die? <laughs> And then, then what happens? Does somebody else pick up where we left off? Do we have to sell our things to somebody? Do we donate our things to a museum? Or do we do what we really kind of want to do and find a place to put all of these things and, and have an every day as opposed to a traveling here and there, wherever we can be sort of a thing? Plus, I think a lot of those traveling um, museums that we did, we would, we would do themes, like we've done Nintendo themes and we've done Atari themes. And when Activision had their anniversary, we did a big Activision thing at E3. Mm-hmm. But we never got to really show everything that we had. Right. So that was the other kind of allure to having a permanent place is that now we can rotate and put them where we want and kind of have everything. So you, you get a much broader picture of the industry than just, you know, this sort of a snapshot in a, sna- in a tiny space. And you get, I love the whole having a permanent location, though, because, you know, I don't, I don't mean to get depressing on the podcast, but no one lives forever, you know, and it's just when you have a group of people that feel so passionately about something, what happens when they can't do it anymore because we're not here or we physically can't or yeah. something? And, you know, that's um, my website started out being, hey, maybe me and a few friends might need this information. I had no idea it would turn into this. And now it's, it's really like a passion that I archive all of this solid info forever because a website can live forever as long as you know as long as websites are out there so I'm, uh, I'm on your same page with that with making sure to keep this stuff around for people to experience so and I don't know if if you're also a control freak but that a little bit are you? it certainly factors into that too right because if you're not you might be willing to let it go and have somebody else pick up where you left off and transfer all your assets over to somebody who can who you feel you trust right mm-hmm Anyone that knows the three of us, absolutely no way. I mean, we always had a hard time even finding people to help us at, at these shows because we didn't want, they, they didn't have the same vision we did. They weren't going to put things in the same place. We've actually had whole groups of people try to assemble the museum in a way that would look nice for you know the show. And we'd have to go in and rearrange it and do it all over again because it was never right. And it's a curse a little bit, you know. It is, but it's um, the end result is a lot more quality. And I I was lucky enough to find a group of people that uh, that I do trust. And it's you know having the internet, right? Because when you when we started these things out, I mean you're a little older than me, but it's still the internet wasn't what it was today. So if you want to get together with some people, they have to physically be around you. And now I found people around the world that I trust. That you know if time comes to walk away, they're not going to screw up the six years of forty hour weeks that I put into this. You know, it's they're going to keep it. At least, you know, keep the information accurate, keep the content positive, and, and keep it going forever. So. Good. Congratulations. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool to know that you know other people feel the same way. I guess we do about this stuff because it's not it's not just about nostalgia. It's about archiving a, a large piece of history. And when you start to read about where some of these games came from, like uh, I remember reading an article where Sega actually worked with the Department of Defense on one game because it was a simulation of missile strikes. And then they said, hey, we already got the code. You guys mind if we make an arcade game out of this? And they're like, yeah, all right. So and it's like Atari a, did too. Yeah. Atari with the Battlezone game. Right. The same thing. They were working with the government to kind of work out a, a simulation and vectors. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much cool yeah. history and uh, the progression of things. And you know, the one thing that I could never do through a website is the the actual, um, the experience of some of these old games. Like, you got stand-up arcades here, and for the most part, unless you're a very avid gamer, I could take a CRT and a really well-built emulator box, and for the most part, it would be the same 
But then you get things like vector graphics. You get things like um, any of the sit-down arcades, the cheesy afterburner one that all of us had to have loved. You know, it's uh, you just can never recreate that real experience without actually sitting in the original. So yeah, have you ever now, played Spy Hunter? Yeah, the original. Have you ever original tried playing Spy Hunter on anything other than a Spy Hunter cabinet? A NES, and it's not the same. No, yeah, absolutely. Or, or even the simple things like Marble Madness. I remember right. thinking that was an okay game as a kid on my NES, and I just for the first time last year played it in an actual arcade. Totally different. It was awesome. Totally different game. So, yeah, it's being able to preserve the original consoles and the original experience is something that people really appreciate. And I even see the younger generation now that I thought would have zero interest in these things. I get a lot of emails from them saying, hey, I got my PS4 and I just played this port of this game. It's cool, but, you know, let me see the original. And it's funny, too, to see new gamers who, you know, find things like controller lag now. Because games like, you know, the famous Mega Man 2 jumping on the, the, the falling <laughs> rafters, you can't play that with there's any lag at all. Uh. So being able to understand games designed then for that equipment and... So it's uh, it's something that I, I'm obviously pretty passionate about. Good. So. so where did Digital Press play into all of this? Or did you start this um, the website in the store while you were still doing the trade shows and stuff? Digital Press came first. So, so first was the collecting. Then was my best friend Kevin and I said, this was someone that lived near me. You know, mm-hmm. so we're I didn't know any of the guys from the museum or you know most of the people that I I hang around with these days, but. My friend Kevin and I used to play together every weekend, even after we graduated. And uh, we just said one day in 1991, I wonder if anybody else is playing Atari games and if anyone else is playing with their Commodore 64, and I wonder how we might reach out to those people. So we had um, heard that there were these fanzines that were doing kind of that thing. Like the fanzines in every um, walk of life are are geared to find people that enjoy what you enjoy and connect them, mm-hmm. right, before the Internet. Right. So we wrote to a whole bunch of different magazines and we sent them this little four-page newsletter that we put together and we called it Digital Press because our intention also was to try to get game companies to, you know, send us games to review, send us merchandise, and we wanted it to sound professional and also a little bit ambiguous Mm -hmm. so that Digital Press could be video or music or any sort of digital media and in 1991 it sounded like it could be just about anything so that was kind of fun that we had that sort of a, an, an ambiguous enough thing and I mean when that see a four page newsletter you know these guys aren't really super professional right but you know it still got us in the door with a lot of companies in fact Electronic Arts for years was sending us every game that came out everything and when NBA Live came out we had just sent it automatically to us and we would review it like we did our due diligence with them um, but Kevin and I wrote that specifically to reach out to people and try to find other collectors and in some ways to fill in our collections and in other ways to learn more about everything that mm-hmm. there was out there because we had been living in this bubble in New Jersey of what we thought video game and collecting was. So sure enough, there's lots of people out there that are collecting video games and doing what we were doing in their own little bubbles everywhere and, and this was kind of a cool way of bringing people who consi- at least considered themselves experts in the video game collecting field together. So we started to do books on how much things were worth and how hard they were to find and every little detail that you could find out about them. And that's sort of how we went on being digital press for years. Mm -hmm. And that spanned from 91 until the internet came along. And it's still, there's still an online component to digital press, but, um, yeah, the forums still pop up in Google searches yeah, for certain topics. Yeah, old stuff, right? Yeah. We kind of left the legacy site up um, because it does have a wealth of information from people who, you know, at that time in the early 2000s mm-hmm. were 
learning. Yeah. So we don't want to get rid of it. And before, I mean, that's the whole um, inception of my website was that when I first tried to get the better quality out of these older consoles, all this information was scattered across websites like the digital press forums, and I just tried to compile. Well, I, I took everything I learned, tested it, figured out it was actually the right way of doing things because some had pretty bad info on there, and then made a website around that. So, and then it just kind of snowballed into what it is today. But yeah, your your website was one of the ones that I had gotten a lot of info from, a lot of good info as well. And some of the guys that are still active today started out posting there. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I still, uh, same thing. I do Google searches sometimes where at the register and somebody brings something. I'm like, I don't remember what this is. And you'd Google it and they're, oh, look at this. It's back to my own forum. <laughs> so it's good to keep that stuff. Just like you said, you want to archive and preserve everything that you possibly can. You know, mm -hmm. that digital media that's out in the cloud somewhere is kind of important to keep too. Mm. So when did, uh, when did you actually open the storefront? So this opened in 2005. Okay. So I had a full, different full-time job for many years leading up to that, and it was just that point. I had just turned 40 that year, and it was, am I ever going to wish that I had done something different to make this more than a hobby for myself, or, again, do I just continue doing this until I die? <laughs> so I decided to take a change and open up a store and try to you know, do a physical location as opposed to just doing all this as a hobbyist gotcha. in 2005. That's really all it was. It was just a matter of changing careers. Hmm. So when I the reason I discovered your store is because every time uh, I used to travel a lot for work now it's not nearly as much but the past couple of years every time I go to a new area I just google like retro gaming stores and this one popped up and I walked in and I met Leo that day and uh, then I kind of realized who you were the connection to the store but the thing that brought me back was the the variety of stuff you guys have and the prices so I live in Manhattan now and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to start becoming one of those people that just points fingers but one store I was in had a Stock Atari 2600 for $125. Stock, nothing special about it, not even a cap replacement. And then you come to stores like yours where you Google the prices of some of your rare stuff and they're either on par or cheaper than you can get them online. So what, what drives you to, to keep that? Is it just the, the thought of longevity and not the cash grab? Obviously, it's the passion for the game community, but, I mean, you, your store is obviously set up behind fairness, you know? You know, and, and I can't really blame a store in Manhattan for what might seem to be overcharging for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I can't even imagine what they pay for rent. Yeah. And to pay the bills, right? And people that work there probably expect to be paid more than people that would work here. Right. So you have to keep up with that, and you need to be able to pay the bills. So sometimes you might have to resort to... Plus, it's a touristy area, right, where somebody might come in. They're, they don't have an access to any other shops within a 50-mile radius because they're just there for that's, some other purposes. And that's what I Atari, was told. I didn't think I could find that anywhere, you know? Yeah, that's what I was told by somebody that works there, that the tourists, you know, that spur-of-the-moment tourist attitude or people that come from countries that have really high import rates. So you could just shove that in your carry-on bag and, you know, <laughs> get your Atari for 125 It's still cheaper than if you had to ship it, so... It's just a matter of being fair, and any business is the same way. I mean, if, you're, if you know your product really well, and you know just what it takes to pay the bills, and you're willing to take X percent of that, you, you price based on what the most fair number is. So, yeah, we've, we've been fortunate enough to have a good enough um, flow of traffic coming in where things are constantly being bought and sold to pay the bills. So to pay, we're paying the bills, therefore we can make our prices better. It's really just cool. pretty basic stuff. It's just everything fell into place then, really. Yep. Good. We've been lucky. 
Um, so the video game museum itself, this is located in Texas, correct? Frisco, Texas. Why Texas? Just middle of the country, or...? Um, I mean, that's a side result of where it is. It was nice, but um, as we were doing the traveling museum and we started to pitch that we were looking for a permanent home to industry members everywhere we went, uh, we, we had some so-so interesting offers, and then we had places that we were looking into ourselves. Like, we really wanted to be in the Silicon Valley area. We wanted to to put our camp right next to um, the uh, Computer History Museum mm -hmm. because that would make it a perfect destination. You could do both. But, dude, the, the rent in a place like that, so unless somebody was going to donate a building to us, there, it was never going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we went on this campaign of, of trying to get industry guys to look at our product and did, could you find a place for us or do you have an inn somewhere? And we met Randy Pitchford in 2012 in Las Vegas at a show called Dice. Mm -hmm. Um, this is where they give the industry um, Academy Awards, essentially, for video games. Right. So we met him, and he's like, he was actually, funny thing is he was sitting in our exhibit. Our exhibit often contains this 80s living room. Mm -hmm. That was sort of a signature for us. We always had this 80s living room, and you'd be playing on a console, television, and um, people would sort of gather around that. Well, IGN was doing interviews with these industry guys, and we had the most comfortable place to sit. So they sat down, and they were doing the interviews, and, uh, and, and Randy was looking around, and he goes, Where, what's going on? What are you guys trying to do? He goes, I, I want to see a museum happen. How can I help? And it turns out that he was moving his company, which is Gearbox, mm -hmm. from Plano, Texas to Frisco, and already knew the players in Frisco, already kind of had an idea of what it takes to get a business going and what sort of property is available, and, um, and, and essentially found us the place that we ended up moving, which is the Discovery Center in Frisco. So the Discovery Center is a conglomeration of museums. At the time, it was, it was set up for three museums to fit in this one building. Mm -hmm. Um, the place is great. We went to the city. We love the city. It's an up-and-coming place. It's 20 minutes away from the Dallas airport. It's in the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. It's a place where if a company like Gearbox is willing to relocate there, and we looked at other companies in that area, there's a lot of tech going on in that space. TI, Texas Instruments, is right there. They have been in Plano forever. Dallas has had a booming tech industry since the early 2000s. Sure. So. Like, you know, id mm -hmm. came from that area. So, um the place made a lot of sense, and then the fact that it is centrally located sort of takes care of this whole thing that we were hearing a lot, like, well, if you guys go to California, that's going to be a pain in the ass for people on the East Coast, right? Yeah. I mean, who wants to fly six and a half hours for that, you know? So this way, it's three hours or so, farthest, everywhere. just about anywhere you have yeah. to go. It's, that makes it somewhat more palatable. Um, this city's uh, deal that they made with us is that we got our training wheels on when we opened up in April of 2016 in this, um, what we're calling Museum 1.0. Museum 1.0 is 10,000 square feet. That's what's there now. It's a pretty big. Yeah. Uh, 10,000 square feet's a pretty good size. But 10,000 square feet for a video game museum means that you can spend two or three hours and you'll see everything there is to see. I mean, sure, you could sit in front of a game for an hour alone, but... Right. The idea is we have an arcade and we have lots of interactive stuff and everywhere that you go there's something that you can do to play. Mm-hmm. But we had a much bigger blueprint originally in mind. So we had to figure out a way to get our 50,000 square foot blueprint down to 10. So we did that because this city also said, look, this works out. We've got this big adjacent property that's going to be open in the next three to five years. You guys could move into that and expand. So 
that was great, right? We got training wheels. We didn't know anything about running a real museum or mm -hmm. running a nonprofit or mm -hmm. staffing or anything. Like we had to learn it all, which for your first time is a good way to start small. Right. Yeah. If we had that, five, if we had a fifty thousand square foot um, museum in the outset, I, I don't know how we would have done it. So that actually was segues to my next question. Is now um, I know nothing about the back end of museums, and the question I get a lot when talking to people about this stuff is, how does one start a museum and how does it work? So are you actually a nonprofit museum, and do you have it set up like we were talking about control freaks and you know what, what happens when you pass the torch? Is it set up for longevity? Is it set up so that for all the things that we just talked about, or is it just basically a company and a business? No, it's com it's really complicated. Um, we learned a lot. There's there's a lot of things about who who's in charge when you're running a nonprofit because you you have to follow rules that you might not ordinarily follow in a business like this. Right. Um, everything has to be fair practice and due diligence, and you have to make sure that you have a board, and you have to make sure that there is voting done on things whenever you make a change, and that it's you know, and that that board itself rotates, which means that you're not always dealing with the same personnel that you have control over, right? Again, mm -hmm. for a control freak, I can choose my staff here and I can change it when I need to change it. When you're working in a nonprofit world, there's a good chance that you're not going to have that control over the course of two years, especially as it goes forward. Um, so we were willing to make that, uh, if you want to call it a sacrifice, it's, to me it's more of like, well, if you do things in a nonprofit world, there's a lot of benefits for you as well. Right. Um, for example, we have the city 100% behind us because it's considered a cultural landmark for the city, right? Mm -hmm. We could have opened up a for-profit museum and run it pretty much exactly the way it is today and had more control over it, but having the city of Frisco behind it, having having something where the industry can say, well, if it's non-profit, then it's, it's also not biased. It's not like we're going to walk away with all the stuff that the industry gives us and sell it on eBay. Right. We can't. We right. actually can't do it. So... Um, it, it instills a little bit of confidence in people that want to invest in this sort of a thing, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of really all we wanted all along. Well, that's actually the next question I had. It's almost like we trained before this. <laughs> um, for all the people like myself that are, are I mean, I, I hate to describe it any other way, but I, you know, I'm scared of what's going to happen to my collection when I'm done with it, whatever I'm done with it might mean. And it's just, I can't tell you how many times a friend of mine goes hunting for things and he'll go to like yard sales and there's a meticulous collection of something that'll pick up for a hundred bucks that's worth a lot. And he is not one of those, you know, eBay flippers. So he, you know, maybe for the, the little useless stuff, but he collects and loves these things. And what's going to happen to guys like us that don't want that? Could we donate that? Could we set something up so that, you know, whatever it is, if it's something you're even interested in, we'll be able to send it to you guys and have it archived forever? Or is that... You know. Yeah, that's that's exactly the the charter of the museum is that you know everything everything that we can use gets used and everything that we can't gets archived. And so I imagine everything that's you know you probably have a, a back a large back storage area to, to have all those extra things to hold on to forever. Well, so. that's so this is part of it, right? Because we're dealing with a small area, ten thousand square feet. There's also a small storage area for it. The, the bigger expanded version of the museum would also include a library of games, which is like the Library of Congress for video gamers, which means that you'd walk in and pretty much any game ever released is available for you to play. Mm -hmm. You can't do that in 10,000 square feet. No way. It's hard to do it in 50. <laughs> so if, if we um, chop out a big piece of this 50,000 that's coming and put a 20,000 square foot library, that's the only way you can store 15,000 games. 
mm-hmm. which is what we have. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So for now, when you say storage and there's a storage area in the back, those 15,000 games are still in our own personal collections waiting for the expansion so that they can they can go. Gotcha. And do you know when about the target to move is? I don't. <laughs> I, I would tell you a date, but it's likely to change. I, I did that when we were opening the first museum. We had a date, we had a date, we had a date. But it's, it's years and not tens of years, years, you think? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. It's, I mean, honestly, five years, within five years, that gotcha. expansion should happen. Um, now, I've never been there. I will be going to Texas in a few months, so of course. I'm going to make sure to do a whole video tour of it and everything. Good. But um, uh, I, you said, you know, consoles, games, arcades. Um, do you have any of the, the classic video production monitors there? Because that's become kind of my passion, the Sony BVM and PVMs. I mean, these things, one of the ones I got a few years ago for a few hundred dollars was um, one of the, the BVM techs told me with all the cards in it was almost $60,000 in 2005. I got it for a couple hundred bucks. And seeing games on this thing is mind blowing. I mean, you can you just can't describe. It's better than through an HD TV. Yeah. Um, I could certainly get a bunch of those to send to you guys. Um, not the not the super rare ones yet. I'm sure people want to hold on to those, but definitely the middle of the ground ones. But um, is that something you'd be interested in displaying as well? Like it that? would. I mean, we've always wanted to. You want to have the best possible thing, right, for people mm-hmm. to come to. And the one thing that's still I don't want to say it's not a good thing, but it's it's the only way we could do it. Is we we have this hall, um, it's it's a long wall of game consoles essentially. Now the right way to do that would be to have those types of monitors where you're playing everything in the best possible quality, but on a CRT versus trying to play it on a flat screen, which we all know there's issues right. on modern games on flat screens and older games on flat screens. Um, but what we have are these Crosleys that look like old televisions, and they're all mounted to the wall, and it looks really nice. And for the most part, people don't notice that they're playing on a flat screen and that there's maybe a little lag or there's a little bit of ghosting going on. That isn't the ideal way to do it. Mm. So, again, we expand. It gives us opportunities to kind of refit the way everything is you know, today and people can play on something like that. We, the space that we have now just wasn't built to be able to manage that. Well, one of the things, um, you know, I guess a side hobby, if you will, is trying to hunt down these extra monitors and, you know, and then fighting through, of course, the people who buy one and try to put it on eBay for 10 grand now. And, um, but really? one of the, yeah, oh yeah, the price gouging is insane on all of this wow. stuff nowadays. But one of the things I found is there are a lot of warehouses that says, hey, we have uh, 40 of these, uh, the PVMs, so not as high quality, but still blows away. I mean, it's slightly better than arcade monitor quality. Um, we have like 40 of these. Come take them all. You're not, you're not allowed to go through them. You're not allowed to test them. we got to just get them out of here. But at least half work, give me a thousand bucks. So that's the type of thing that I, I just don't have the space for that I would have loved to. So when you move into the 50,000 square foot thing, I might be coming there with a truck one day and uh, a <laughs> case of Red Bull and a, a truck pulling up with 40 monitors so that you could actually have PVMs. But those, uh, those are the two things I would always want to see is at, you know high quality CRTs on the old consoles. And I'd love to see a CRT wall. So one actual console, not pre-recorded content, driving everything from an old RF TV from the 70s all the way up to these BVM CRTs. Yeah, it would be, be really cool. Yeah. Well, we yeah. even had uh, we had designs on um, on setting up as a, a wall of monitors at one time. Because I don't know if you might be too young to remember this, but when I was a kid growing up, Parker Brothers used to do these ads for their games like Frogger and Qbert and Popeye where they made them on multiple platforms. So like you could buy Frogger on your television, you could have it on ColecoVision, it was on the Atari computers, and they showed you this thing 
that looked almost like a big wall of monitors, and it showed each one of the versions of that game playing on each of the monitors. And I remember mm -hmm. when I was a kid, like, wow, that is the coolest thing. Like, look at how much better it looks like on the ColecoVision. So one of the things that we wanted to do when we opened the museum was to have a real wall playing the real versions of all of those games on the monitors. That is a very cool idea. And we did actually do it, but they're all playing on LCD screens. Oh. It's video playing on L flat LCD screens. So we were able to recreate a live version of the ad, but it would have been really way cooler if the wall was, in fact, CRTs. Yeah, I'll help you out with that. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely yeah, be keeping in that touch. That would be awesome. And with the museum to have rotating exhibits, you know, if, it, if that was every couple months you change that to a different game, I mean, that's we, we have. everybody, another excuse for people to come back, I guess. So that's very cool. So um, what are plans for the future, other than, of course, eventually moving into the 50,000-square-foot building? Um, you, it's just this one store in New Jersey, correct? And then the, the museum out there. Are you expanding to new locations or partnering with other museums? Or are you guys focusing on that one spot? We have uh, j just expanding to where we need to be is going to take all of us and a lot more for, like I said, the next five years or so. So... I never had any intentions of doing much more than what I'm doing here at the store. I like having one place that I can manage, and it, it's the mecca. I don't have to worry about there being my own store somewhere else that has better products. Right? I mean, I know people think about it in those terms, like you're you're trying to build an empire. I never was. I just wanted to build the best video game store that you could have, and that was it. Um, so my intentions on building and doing work in the future is pretty much museum-based, and that's, gotcha. like I said, going to take up more than just my energy for the next five years. And uh, I've seen more than one company call themselves the Video Game Museum. Do you have affiliation with those, or are those people trying to do the same thing on their own? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that there are other museums that have video game um, displays in them. The Strong Museum of Play in Rochester has a video game iCheg, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't ask me what it stands for, but there's other. Um, the Smithsonian has you know a section at those video games. Um, I know that there. In fact, when we were looking for a website name, there was I think video game museum already taken mm -hmm. by somebody that's doing basically digital versions of museum stuff, like keeping all of the stuff, keeping photographs and high quality scans and that kind of a thing. Um, I mean, we will work with anybody. You know, and, and um, we're always happy to share our knowledge and share our items and, you know, we have enough space to be able to do rotating things where we can have the museum's entire, you know, section of something that they think would be cool to trade with. Um, we might be too new for that to really have mm -hmm. any sort of an impact yet, but um, we'd certainly be open to it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for your time. I oh, think uh, people are really going to dig this one, and I'll definitely keep in touch, and uh, hopefully I'll be filling your museum with monitors yeah, once yeah. you have the Pack space for the it. Yeah, so. yeah, we'll see you in a few years. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks again, and take care, and uh, see you guys next week.